We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. We spent a wonderful uh, morning and mid-afternoon with pastors from all over the metro area. Some as far as, I think we had Springfield and Bend uh, pastors from all over the state, and it was a real blessing. I should say the states of Oregon and Washington, real blessing to hang out with them for the day at our Pastors Masters Golf Tournament, but it's good to be back in studio, and there's a lot to talk about. We're going to talk with Ryan Anderson uh, later this hour. He's the author, or rather co-author, of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. It's an Excellent book to help um, train us to speak well about issues related to religious uh, freedom and uh, how to respond to discrimination in a way that's honoring to Christ but speaks the truth in love. He'll join us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's the Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty, and he's also the host of the First Liberty Briefing. Um, attorneys from First Liberty Institute, uh, they held an on-the-record meeting with administration officials yesterday, and the topic of discussion was the Affordable Air, uh, Care Act's uh, contraception mandate. They've urged that the draft interim final rule that uh, was offered uh, by the president, it offers broad conscience protections that it be made final in, in light of uh, what happened in the Senate today and what's uh, kind of the back and forth in both the House and the Senate in repealing and replacing Obamacare. It's an interesting conversation we'll have uh, in the five o'clock hour. Also, we'll talk with Wes Walterman. He is the CEO and musical director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Tickets go on sale today. And one of the benefits of that in the Christmas in July is that through the 14th of August, you can enjoy some discounts. And we'll explain all of that when he joins me at the bottom of the hour at five o'clock. So uh, looking forward to that. Well, there was the expected fanfare when John McCain took to the floor of the U.S. Senate today. They paid tribute to his reemergence with the same gruff humor that he um, has become sort of his his trademark, his hallmark of his career. Uh, He has spoken in the past about his desire to make the most of every day he has left in the Senate. And, of course, his days now may uh, be numbered in a way that they hadn't been before. On Monday, he had tweeted, look forward to returning to the Senate tomorrow to continue work on health care reform, defense bill. And hashtag Russia sanctions. Uh, but for all the sentiment expected on Tuesday, he uh, said it, the hard business of politics in polarized Washington is likely to quickly reassert itself and made itself rather and made the point that the colleagues that would praise him on his return would quickly turn on him once the, deb- the debate began. Well, Senate Republicans today resuscitated their health care legislation, at least for now. They narrowly cleared uh, a key test vote with the help of Senator John McCain's dramatic return to the chamber for the first time since his brain cancer diagnosis. 
The Senate voted 51 to 50 to start debate, and that's all the vote was about, starting the debate with Vice President Pence casting the tiebreaker. The procedural vote uh, once again brings the Obamacare overhaul legislation back from the brink of collapse after intense prodding from the president who had pressured senators to skip recess until they act, acted rather on the health care legislation. The bill still faces a very tough road ahead, but it was a heavy lift just to get it to this point. No Democrats supported the motion. No surprise there, leaving Republicans to corral the necessary 50 votes. They got exactly that, requiring uh, the vice president to break the tie. The airtight vote made McCain's return all the more significant as the measure could not have advanced without him. The result was kept in suspense for a while. Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, not a surprise in either case, voted no from the start. Several other Republican senators then delayed casting their vote with no wiggle room left for additional defections on the GOP side. And again, the only question on the vote was whether or not debate could begin in earnest. Applause broke out as uh, John McCain entered the chamber as expected, pointing at his uh, colleagues and shaking hands as he uh, joined the last GOP holdout. Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican out of Wisconsin, voted with the Arizona senator to start the debate. John McCain quickly announced that he would not vote for the legislation itself, however, in its current form. The procedural vote now kicks off what is likely to be another intense round of debate on health care, in which senators are sure to propose numerous changes to the plan, which could either boost or doom its chances. If a bill passes, it would still have to be reconciled with the House version. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, urged his Republican colleagues to follow through on campaign promises to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. We have a duty to act. The president is ready with his pen, he said. We can't let this moment slip by. Well, moments earlier, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he beseeched Republicans to turn back. We know the ACA is not perfect which is the first time he's uttered anything approaching that. But we also know what you're uh, proposing is much worse, he said. A rowdy group of protesters uh, then erupted into a a chant, kill the bill, don't kill us, and shame. For their part, Democrats uniformly oppose the effort to tear down President Obama's signature legislative achievement. Republicans control the chamber uh, 52 to 48, meaning they could afford to lose just two Republicans with McCain around. Well, Trump had kept up the pressure on GOP lawmakers, tweeting that after seven years of talking, we will still see whether or not Republicans are willing to step up to the plate. He added, Obamacare is torturing the American people. The Democrats have fooled the people long enough. Repeal or replace and replace. Okay. Um, I have a pin in hand, he went on to say. Well, McConnell's original bill would abolish much of Obama's law, eliminating its tax penalties on people not buying policies, cutting Medicaid, eliminating its tax boosts on medical companies, and providing less generous health care subsidies for consumers who would not have been eligible for Medicare under its original charter. But at least a dozen uh, GOP Republican senators have openly said, that was redundant, GOP and Republican, but you, you can... Give me a pass on that, I hope. Uh, they've said that they oppose or criticize the measure, which uh, McConnell has uh, revised as his as he uh, hunted Republican support. And while it had long seemed headed toward defeat, Republicans have begun showing glimmer of uh, glimmers of optimism. Senators and aides said talks were continuing that might win over enough Republicans uh, to commence the debate. Now, there is some question, however, 
uh, as to whether or not Republicans alone can pass this health care bill. 60 votes or nothing. That's what the Senate parliamentarian is warning Republicans about rules for health care uh, for the health care bill. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. Also a reminder, Ryan Anderson will join us uh, at 430. He's the co-author of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, published by Oxford University Press. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned, uh, 60 votes or nothing. That's what the Senate parliamentarian warns Republicans about the rules for health care. Uh, and what they're suggesting is while this procedural vote only required the minimum number to pass, the actual legislation will require much more. Now, key parts of the Republican health care bill, including defunding Planned Parenthood, barring the use of tax credits for abortion coverage, are not eligible for the fast track process Republicans are using to prevent a Democratic filibuster. That's according to the Senate's referee throwing yet another roadblock in front of President Trump's attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare, well, this week or some week. Already, Republican leaders are struggling to gather enough support from the party's rank and file for the replacement bill or a straightforward repeal of the 2010 law, even though they're leveraging budget reconciliation rules to carve Democrats out of the process. Well, in new guidance, the Senate parliamentarian made their uh, task tougher by saying key parts of the plan should require 60 votes to pass. That's according to uh, Senate Democrats on the Budget Committee. The parliamentarian's decision proves once again that the process Republicans uh, have undertaken to repeal the Affordable Care Act and throw 22 million Americans off of health care insurance is a disaster. So says uh, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont Independent, after detailing parliamentarian Elizabeth uh, McDonough's findings on Friday. Well, conservatives and advocates have insisted on pro-life language in whatever plan emerges, yet Democrats will not help them get the votes that they would need to strip Planned Parenthood of Medicaid funding for a year or endorse certain policy changes such as a continuous coverage provision to replace Obamacare's individual mandate. So the heavy lifting has uh, really just begun. If you want to consider a vote to uh, uh, allow conversation to continue over the next 20 hours, and that's 20 legislative hours, not uh, just straight clock hours. Uh, But nonetheless, they've at least decided they'll permit that. Uh, But again, the heavy lifting yet to come. Meanwhile, President Trump left the fate of his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, up in the air during a press conference this afternoon, saying he's disappointed with his cabinet member while stopping short of saying whether he'll fire the country's top cop. And it's rather interesting that uh, uh, Secretary Sessions is uh, working from home over the next few days. They're saying he's still working 50 hours a week or 20 hours a day or something. I'm not sure what the figure is, but that he's doing so from home. Um, not a typical arrangement, but uh, the president said the White House, uh, rather from the White House Rose Garden, uh, we will see what happens. Time will tell. Hmm. The president has publicly vented his frustration at the secretary of state for recusing himself from the Russian investigation. Many uh, would argue, and I think uh, rightly, that he really had little uh, choice in the matter. But the president said he should not have recused himself almost immediately after he took office. And if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me prior to taking office. And I I would have quite simply picked somebody else. So I think that's a bad thing, not for the president, but for the presidency. Well, Trump also slammed Sessions for not being tough enough on leaks from intelligence agencies. These are intelligence agencies. He said, we cannot have that. I told you before that I'm very disappointed with the attorney general, but we will see what happens. 
Again, a quote. Trump tore into the attorney general earlier uh, in a series of tweets when he called the former Alabama senator very weak on Hillary Clinton's supposed crimes. White House Press Secretary uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders would not confirm rumors that the president was considering firing sessions, but did not rule out uh, rule it out either. She told Fox and Friends that she hasn't been part of any conversations discussing any potential replacements, but made clear that Trump is frustrated and disappointed in the attorney general. That frustration certainly hasn't gone away. And I don't think it will, Sanders said. Well, new White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci also defended the president's public comments on the secretary, uh, saying Trump wants his cabinet secretaries to have his back. Well, despite the public digs from the White House, Sessions said last week that he plans to stay on as attorney general as long as that is appropriate. Well, he serves at the pleasure of the executive and we'll see what's appropriate from that a standpoint. Well, President Trump has two chief uh, two chief spokespersons with political and campaign experience after a long anticipated shakeup that saw the resignation of White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has been conducting the bulk of White House briefings for months and will likely have a seamless transition, as she did, uh, into her job. Anthony Scaramucci, the new White House communications director who fielded questions on Friday, has television experience, political experience and Wall Street experience. But this will be a first government job for him. Sarah will be the press secretary, he said in that press conference on Friday. The president loves Sarah and thinks she is doing a phenomenal job. I agree with him. He also praised the department. Spicer, despite reports that said Spicer resigned because Scaramucci was hired. He said Spicer wanted to clear the slate and express support for his patriotism. I hope he goes on to make a tremendous amount of money, Scaramucci said. Well, Spicer, who will remain at the White House uh, through August, we were told, but apparently left today, weathered many bitter confrontations with the press over stories concerning Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential campaign the attendance for Trump's inauguration and various other matters. Sanders uh, read a Trump statement about the communications staff shakeup. I am grateful for Sean's work on behalf of my administration and the American people. I wish him continued success as he moves on to pursue new opportunities. Just look at his great television ratings, end quote. Well, Spicer will serve the administration through August, she said. And again, I heard that he left Washington today. But on the new communications director, Sanders said, uh, read the statement from uh, the president. Anthony is a person I have great respect for, and he will be an important addition to this administration. He has been a great supporter and will now help implement key aspects of our agenda while leading the communications team. We have accomplished so much, and we are being given credit for so little. The good news is the people get it, even if the media doesn't, end quote. Well, because of Spicer's close relationship with the White House Chief of Staff, Reince Priebus, um, several questions came up about the new communications director's relationship with Priebus. Well, Scaramucci told reporters that he uh, and uh, Mr. Priebus uh, were like brothers, which is why they um, they rough each other up sometimes, but Scaramucci said he would be reporting directly to the president and not to the chief of staff. I have no problem working with him, but that would be the chain of um, of communication. Meanwhile, a federal judge uh, on Monday rejected complaints that President Trump's Voter in- Integrity Commission was breaking the law by requesting and storing states' voter data, public information, saying that as long as the panel is just advisory, it does not need to meet strict standards that would apply to government agencies. The ruling was highly technical, but it uh, clears the way for that commission to once again begin collecting data from willing states. And not all states are willing, as we discussed last week. Meanwhile, a right-leaning fact-checker is fighting critics on the left to say its conclusions 
that a lot of non-citizens vote illegally is bunk. The back and forth has begun. The online battle of debunking and rebuttal is playing out as a much larger war has erupted between President Trump's Commission on Election Integrity and Democratic state leaders. There aren't as many of them as there are Republicans, so we'll see how this plays out. But they are refusing to provide the panel with public voter registration data. Left-wing groups are suing to stop the commission's work, which could settle the non-citizen debate by collecting enough data. In the fact-check standoff, there is Just Facts, a small New Jersey firm of conservative and libertarian policy analysts who promote what they say is solid independent research. Just Facts President James Agresti issued a blockbuster report in June using previous research, polling data and Census Bureau figures. Uh, his team concluded that as few as 594,000 non-citizens or as many as 5.7 million voted in the 2008 presidential election. If accurate on the high side, it would vindicate Mr. Trump's contention that a lot of illegal ballots were cast in his race for the White House last year with Democrat Hillary Clinton. Challenging Mr. Agresti are fact-checkers PolitiFact and Snopes.com, which conservatives generally view as liberal, liberal college professors and left-leaning news sites such as the Huffington Post. When Mr. Agresti uh, read their uh, broadsides, he issued a rebuttal that essentially said they do not understand statistics. Scientific random samples, though small, can be used to estimate behaviors of larger population sectors, as all polls do, he said. Well, PolitiFact wrote, the number comes from a conclusion by Just Facts, a conservative libertarian think tank. Just Facts numbers came from a study by Old Dominion University researchers. That study was based on a survey which showed that 38 38 people out of 32,800 claimed to be non-citizens who had actually voted. Just Facts used data from the study and census estimates of non-citizen population to come up with a national figure of non-citizen voters. So the back and forth continues. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Ryan Anderson, co-author of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest recently advised graduates during a commencement address at Franciscan University in Steubenville to be prepared to defend the truth. Pursuing and defending truth will be a lifelong task. He pointed out that we have a responsibility to show the world the harmony of faith and reason. Ryan Anderson is 35. He is Heritage Foundation's William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow. He focuses on religious liberty, marriage, and family. His latest book is Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. He regularly tours the country, giving speeches at universities, debating on behalf of traditional values on television, and giving interviews for radio programs like this one. Well, you might remember his performance on CNN's Pierce Morgan Live, where he bravely debated Morgan and financial guru Susie Orman before an audience that was stacked against him. Or you might recall his appearance on MSNBC's now defunct The Ed Show, where the liberal host was so aggravated by his argument that he demanded producers cut his mic off. In 2015, he authored Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and his book, What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense, was cited twice by Justice Samuel Alito in his defense of traditional marriage in his defense, uh, his dissenting opinion in the United States versus Windsor. 
Well, this book is essential reading for those who are interested in preserving the freedom of all Americans to speak and act consistent with their convictions. And Ryan Anderson explains religious freedom policy is critical for helping navigate our differences. Well, the book is uh, rather interesting in that it offers a point-counterpoint discussion on issues of our day, issues like... um, uh, of conscience, the nature of dignity uh, that demand a, uh, the demands of a diverse society and so on. Well, joining us to talk about the book is one of the co-authors, Ryan Anderson. It's a uh, pleasure to have you back with us once again. Thanks for having me. Happy to be with you. Now, this is unusual in terms of how the book is constructed. Uh, talk about your co-authors and how you approach the, the thorny issues of the culture wars in the book. Sure. So um, half of the book is um, written with me and my co-author, Sharif Gurgis. Um, Sharif and I, we're both conservatives. Um, we're pro-life on the abortion question. We're uh, pro-marriage, understood as a union of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife on the marriage debate. We're also in favor of an understanding of religious liberty um, that is properly um, expansive. That's more than merely the freedom to worship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the ability of people to live out their faith uh, seven days a week at all walks of life. Then our counterpoint author, uh, he authors the other half of the book, and it's you know a point counterpoint, point counterpoint, back and forth. The chapters go, and um, he would be uh, identified as a political liberal or progressive. Um, he's in favor of gay marriage. Uh, he himself is gay married. He's in uh, pro-choice on the abortion question, and so we disagree about all of these underlying um, issues. He also has a narrower understanding of religious liberty. He thinks that what Sharif and I defend is religious privilege, that we want to give privilege to religious people that we don't want to give to non-religious people, and that we defend religious liberty uh, where it harms other people, where it uh, imposes uh, costs on other people, so that if the little sisters of the poor aren't going to be providing health insurance that covers contraception, that they're imposing their religion on other people. Um, that's the nature of the book. What's good about this book is that means if you're a reader, you're going to get the best arguments from both sides of this debate. Um, obviously, we disagree. Uh, Sharif and I think that John is wrong, that he's profoundly wrong. John thinks that Sharif and I are wrong, that we're profoundly wrong. You as the reader are going to be able to see um, a sharp progressive and two sharp conservatives go at it in a back-and-forth, point-counterpoint format. Well, it seems to me there there's a lot of value to this, but there are two things that come to mind. One is it helps to sharpen one's skill to communicate effectively uh, the truth and defend it, the, this ground that you stand on. But it also gives you um, uh, the clarity of what others are saying who with whom you would profoundly disagree and how to engage in that back-and-forth in a way that is is civil. What would you describe as the purpose of uh, this very unique format? Sure. I mean, this is meant so that the reader, you'll better understand your own position. Mm-hmm. You'll better understand your um, opponent's position. You may come to switch positions. Um, so one point of this book is just to um, educate people. I want conservatives to better understand liberals. I also want them to better understand the conservative position. And maybe I want some liberals to become conservative. I mean, that's part of what we're doing here is, is educating. The other thing is that we're modeling how to have a disagreement. Yes, yes. Um, so many people, especially on college campuses today, are unable to disagree with one another um, while remaining civil. And we don't pull our punches. Uh, this is a full, um, uh, uh, a fully articulated uh, disagreement, but we can disagree uh, without getting nasty. And that's a very important skill to have uh, in contemporary America. 
I quoted uh, from your commencement address at the Franciscan University of Steubenville commencement, uh, in which you spoke uh, to those graduates and told them to be prepared to defend the truth. My guess is there are some listeners here today who are preparing to do just that. And there are others who believe that belongs uh, to other people. Uh, What's at stake and to whom is this book intended to challenge to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within them and for the principles that are worth defending? Sure. Uh, There is going to be a challenge for millennials um, to bear witness to the truth um, that really is unprecedented in American history. Um, At no point um, have Americans... Um, face the challenges that millennials will face um, in bearing witness to the truth, uh, whether that be um, the truth about the gospel, whether that be the truth about the natural law, whether that be the truth about um, basic moral and political principles. Um, all of these things right now are being contested in a way that they haven't been contested um, in our civilization, and now the cost um, of that contestment, um, the cost of bearing witness to the truth on these issues will be higher than at other points in our history. Um, So if you are the parent of a millennial, you want to do what you can to encourage them to develop the virtues, courage and prudence, um, uh, most specifically, to be willing to speak the truth in a way that's compelling and accessible to their neighbors. Um, Many of our neighbors, if you're a millennial, um, they don't agree with us on the foundations. They don't share our background. They don't share our, share our presuppositions. We need to be able to communicate the truth in a way um, that is acceptable and plausible to people who don't share our background opinions. I think there's some question as to what, what we might expect when that happens. Uh, is victory assured if we are compelling in communicating well uh, might we expect that we'll win victory in the areas that, that there is uh, currently contention? Or is there a responsibility to, to speak uh, the truth in love, regardless of whether or not the culture shifts? Do you think, are you optimistic that, that change is afoot or that we are bearing witness as the, the culture changes in ways that will ultimately um, uh, constrain and continue to challenge men and women of faith? Sure. Well, none of us know um, what the timeline is for victory, uh, whether that happens within um, our lifetimes or our children's or our grandchildren. And so ultimately, we shouldn't be thinking too much about um, you know, what the immediate impact mm-hmm. of our actions will be. We have to do what we can to make the best of a bad situation and to change a bad situation into a good situation. And we frequently will um, have our impact at the margin. Um, so we might be just making the best of a bad situation. Um, that might be all we can plausibly hope for in the immediate future. We might be able to turn a bad situation into a good situation in the long run. But no matter what, we each have to do our part um, to make that marginal progress. Again, we're talking about the book Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. Ryan Anderson is my guest. You begin uh, the book with a uh, a brief history of religious freedom and and draw a contrast between the the, the understanding that this is a privilege, a religious privilege that somehow uh, prevents others from enjoying the same kind of privilege that that the religious do. Give us that that brief history and the context that um, that we should understand about what the, the Constitution says we are entitled to and why that's a good thing for everyone. Sure. I mean, so the Constitution protects the free exercise of religion. Um, the basic idea here is that if the government is going to substantially burden the free exercise of religion, it needs a very good reason for doing so. Um, that religion is one of our civil liberties, 
uh, akin to other civil liberties, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, uh, the freedom of assembly, um, and that government sometimes does need to burden these freedoms. Uh, there are certain situations that justify a government regulation that might imp- uh, impose or infringe on these uh, freedoms. But ordinarily, government isn't justified in infringing on these freedoms. Uh, what this does is it allows people to live their lives in accordance with their own beliefs, in accordance with their own religious beliefs, uh, their own moral beliefs. Uh, it allows them to form their own associations, to speak the truth as they understand the truth, to print the truth as they understand the truth. So all of these First Amendment rights, uh, they hang together in creating what I've called an ecosystem of freedom. What happens when the government violates these beliefs is increasingly popular opinion, majority opinion, overrides individual rights. And that's a problem. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Ryan Anderson. He's the co-author of Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, published by Oxford University Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Ryan Anderson. He's a co-author, along with uh, John Corvino and Sharif Girgis, of uh, the book uh, that's simply titled Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. And the point-counterpoint that is uh, structured into the book uh, will help all of us think more deeply, perhaps uh, understand our position better, as well as those with whom we disagree. Now, one of the issues that your uh, co-author, John Corvino, makes is that um, religious privilege uh, is naturally discriminatory. It, it represents uh, bigotry. And most others, and your co-author doesn't, would then go from there to hate, that holding the views that conservatives do or that Christians do naturally uh, bears the, the moniker of hate. Um, how do you address um that kind of thinking that if there is a religious exemption, for example, uh, that this isn't a religious privilege that naturally uh, deprives someone else of something they believe themselves entitled to. Sure. I mean, a lot really depends on what is that baseline. Um, so you're going to go to this way. Um, are you entitled to have the baker of your choice bake you a wedding cake? Are you entitled to have the hospital of your choice um, perform sex reassignment surgery on you. Now, because right now we see that the ACLU is suing an evangelical baker because he declined to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding reception. And they're suing a Catholic hospital because they declined to remove the uterus of a person, a woman, who wanted to transition to become a man. Um, now, in both of these cases, they argue that the baker and the hospital were exercising, quote, a license to discriminate, and that what they were doing was discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation in the case of the baker and on the basis of gender identity in the case of the Catholic hospital. What I argue is going on is that we simply have a disagreement. Uh, we disagree about what marriage is, and we disagree about whether sex reassignment is a good form of medicine and whether it's the appropriate response to gender dysphoria. And so if liberals are simply going to redefine every disagreement as discrimination, then it's going to be impossible to have a pluralistic society. It's going to be impossible to respect diversity. And of course, pluralism and diversity are the two buzzwords that liberals have been championing for so long, for so many decades now. Progressives and liberals were all about diversity and pluralism, except that now that they're coming to a cultural position of power, and a legal position of power, 
they don't want to allow any diversity or pluralism when it comes to beliefs about marriage or about gender and gender identity. And so they're simply saying, anyone who disagrees with us, you're discriminating and we're going to punish you the same way that we punish racists. Uh, And that simply won't work in the long run. Well, your co-author, John Corvino, also makes the uh, the point that there's a double standard uh, and he refers to it as the Puritan mistake. Is there a double standard, one that applies to uh, individuals who hold certain traditional views and those who uh, hold to the more emerging progressive views on sexuality, for example, um, that represents a double standard when religious uh, f- freedom is applied, when an individual is allowed to live according to their conscience? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the Puritan mistake here is being engaged by progressives. Um, so John calls this the um, uh, Puritan mistake because he thinks that it's religious liberty is only uh, for people who believe the way we believe. That's what he accuses us of. Uh, we respond that that's not the case. We think religious liberty is for all religious believers, uh, whether they be Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or Muslim. Uh, religious liberty is the freedom to believe what you believe to be the truth about God, not what I believe to be the truth about God. Uh, we respond that it's progressives who are engaging in a form of Puritanism uh, when they say that unless you agree with progressivism on abortion and on gay marriage and on gender identity, that you won't be free in the United States. And that's why the ACLU is suing Catholic hospitals that won't perform abortions and that won't do sex reassignment surgeries. They're suing evangelical bakers and florists and photographers. Progressives are acting in puritanical ways in the United States today. One of the reasons um, believers in particular remain silent is they don't feel well-equipped to address the issues that you address in this book. How do you see the book being used by those who want to be effective in their communication, to be uh, influential and persuasive, um, but don't feel yet quite equipped, or maybe don't fully understand the uh, the opposition's views on these issues? I mean, that's exactly why we wrote the book. Um, so the starting point here is, um, it's not a difficult book. Uh, we're all academics, but we wrote this for ordinary people. Um, if you read the book, you'll be better equipped to have these conversations with your neighbors uh, to defend the truth about religious liberty in the public square. Um, this is meant to help people articulate the case, to defend uh, uh, Christian adoption agencies, to defend hospitals that don't do abortion or sex reassignment surgery, to defend bakers, florists, photographers. Uh, this book is meant to equip you um, to do that important work right in the public square. Again, the title is uh, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. I would highly recommend it. I know it's going to have a prominent place in my library, and I thank you so much for uh, writing it, as well as your co-authors, and for talking with us today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Russell Moore, who's the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this of the book, One of the most important debates in our time is that of religious liberty as it relates to the controversies over sex, sexuality, and marriage. Sadly, usually most Americans don't have those debates at all, content to stay in our silos and never engage with those who disagree with us. This book is different. Ryan Anderson, Sharif Girgis, and John Corvino Uh, They model how to hold strong, very strong opinions while debating others with respect. This book will equip you wherever you stand on how the other side from you thinks. If American society follows the lead of this book, our culture wars won't end, but they just might be kinder and smarter. And that's a good start. I think that's a a great 
uh, way to describe what you'll find in the book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. And I appreciate that it's uh, not just a one-sided conversation, but uh, someone who is very skilled at presenting his point of view that differs from that of a conservative, uh, challenges uh, the conservative and vice versa. Again, the book is published by Oxford University Press, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice. He's Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty. And we're going to talk about a discussion on the Affordable Care Act and the contraception mandate. In fact, the draft interim final rule, which they're suggesting be made uh, permanent. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Later this hour, we'll talk with Wes Walterman. He's the CEO and musical director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Tickets go on sale today and through the 14th of, uh, of August. There's a discount available. We'll tell you all about that when he joins us later this hour. Well, attorneys from First Liberty Institute held an on-the-record meeting with administration officials on Monday to discuss the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. Well, they urged that the draft interim final rule that was leaked to the press last month and which offered broad conscience protections be made final as soon as possible. Well, in light of what happened today in the Senate, not much, but at least a, a red light to, or a green light, rather, to move forward, uh, we're going to talk with uh, with Jeremy Dice. He's Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty and host of the First Liberty Briefing. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me again. Well, let's talk about uh, what uh, what happened on Monday. Who did uh, you all meet with, and what was the purpose of that meeting uh, in light of uh, kind of where the repeal and replace of Obamacare stands today? Yeah, on Monday we had the opportunity to meet with uh, several uh, bureaucrats, I guess, or lawmakers or regulators, I guess is the best term. I'm trying to figure out which one to go <laughs> with. They have so many acronyms with their yeah. name. I don't know which one to put it with. But it was several different agencies that were able to be uh, gathered together under the, uh, the, uh, the auspices of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, and they're, they're chiefly responsible for crafting regulations related to uh, the Obamacare mandate. And specifically, they've been uh, tasked with uh, reviewing uh, the regulations related to the contraceptive mandate. Now, folks are going to have to reach way back into the Wayback Machine to remember mm-hmm. that uh, that was back in uh, oh, 20, uh, 2013 or so when we first started litigating these issues. It started with uh, Hobby Lobby and cases like that where for-profit companies were saying, look, uh, I run my, faith according, my, my business according to my faith. Please don't coerce me into having to do something that violates my faith in the process. Mm-hmm. And that was to provide abortive fashions to their employees as a part of their health care plan. Uh, that all the way went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court of the United States said you can't do that. Federal government, uh, the RIFRA applies and bars you from doing that. But we've been litigating this now in the nonprofit world since 2014, uh, and that still has not had a final resolution either at the Supreme Court or in any kind of conciliation with the executive department, either through the Obama administration or more recently with the Trump administration. So the purpose of the meeting was very simple. It was to say, look, this, this regulation that has found its way out into the public, this draft of this regulation, this interim final rule, would provide a really broad exemption, not just an accommodation, an exemption for people who express a religious belief or moral conviction against having to be forced by the government to provide abortifacients or other materials uh, as a part of their health care plans. 
And all we wanted to do is to say, please adopt that in the final form. You know, if Congress won't fully repeal Obamacare and, and then do away with all the regulations underneath of it, at the very minimum, we hope that the agencies governing these regulations and considering them will actually provide the exemptions that our clients have been now almost three years litigating to receive. Now, are there still, is the court still weighing in on uh, the, the the challenge that your clients have made, or is this just sort of a nebulous objection that hasn't been resolved? Well, the, the courts are, are waiting to see something happen. And here's why they're not taking an active role. It's because the, the Department of Justice has actually said, look, we're, we're working on some stuff. Just you know, hold these cases in abeyance until we figure it out. Well, they've been doing that for our cases, for instance, since uh, at least at the earliest, uh, a year and a half or two ago now. And so we've been sitting in abeyance at the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, for instance, for, for that length of time, waiting for some sort of resolution to occur. First it was, let's get all the way through the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, the Supreme Court said, you guys go back and figure it out and come to a resolution. Um, the Obama administration really didn't do much to, to cause that resolution last year. And in fact, on the way out the door last uh uh, at the beginning of January, I guess, this year, uh, they, they basically say, yeah, there's no resolution we can really come to. But the courts have still held those in abeyance. And so they're not doing anything. And everybody's kind of waiting around for something to happen. Well, lo and behold, we get this leaked interim final rule by the Department of uh, HHS, or somebody leaked it out there anyway. And uh, and it, it provides exactly what our clients have been wanting for this entire time. So the broad exemptions, by the way, go for these religious beliefs and moral convictions for those who object to these matters. Uh, and it goes not just for religious ministries, or certainly under the very, very narrow scope of the previous accommodation for churches and church auxiliaries. No, this proposed interim final rule purports to provide exemptions for anyone, for-profit and not-for-profit alike. Those that have a religious belief or moral conviction against these abortive fashions, they can opt out of this program entirely, be exempt from it entirely. And those who don't can simply provide it if they would like so, but those who have that religious belief or moral objection against it, they're exempt from from the penalties of the Obamacare mandate. Now, President Trump uh, issued an executive order back in May of this year entitled Promoting Free Speech and Religious Liberty. What authority do the administrative officials that you met with on Monday have to uh, permanently implement the provisions of that executive order? They serve, obviously, at the, the will and pleasure of the president, uh, but they, they're they the ones that are tasked with issuing these interim final rules. So the people we met with are those that are that are a part of this drafting process, and we met with people from the Department of Labor, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, the the, uh, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It, it, it's a whole list of uh, three- and four-letter acronyms that are out there. IRS, they were there. I mean, there's all kinds of people that are a part of this meeting that, that uh, they're the ones that make the final rule, you know, final. They're, they're the ones that regulate these issues. Uh, so obviously it has to be coordinated through the White House, but it was that executive order that you referenced that was the impetus for this, uh, this uh, draft interim final rule that's been leaked to the press. Uh, and, and I think in response to that executive order, it would be wise for these regulatory bodies under the direction of the president's office 
to make sure that they, they just simply implement it. If Congress is not going to do anything about it, then let's get this taken mm-hmm. care of through at least the regulatory process. Did you get a sense of uh, whether or not they were with you on this, or it's going to be more of a struggle, or w- what kind of response did you sense you were getting? Well, folks are pretty tight-lipped about things in there, but uh, you know, I, I think they, they came with an honest willingness to listen uh, and to receive information. Uh, in fact, I, I'm, I think we were the first ones who, are, as a law firm or an active litigation on this matter, to actually meet with the department here or to, to meet with these regulators and, and express our support for this draft interim final rule to be made permanent. Now, let's see what the Senate does and if the, if the House of Representatives follows suit and, uh, and, and passes this entire repeal. That'd be great. And if the president signed it and got rid of it all, that's wonderful. All of our, our uh, complaints just simply go away as moot. But if there's talk about replacement in addition to repeal, we, we still don't know what that will actually mean for our clients. Uh, if Congress is not just going to simply outright repeal and the president makes that effective, then at a very minimum, we need the, the regulatory bodies to adopt this, this very good protection for the, for individuals' religious beliefs and moral convictions as it comes to these plans. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow um, what happens, and I appreciate First Liberty Institute's willingness to sort of champion these issues for your clients and really for the rest of us uh, moving forward. Thanks so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Again, Jeremy Dice is Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. He also is the host of the First Liberty Briefing. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll tell you about a decision that was recently made by Norton Security regarding First Liberty Institute. Uh, We're also going to bring you the latest on Charlie Gard. His parents are ending their fight to bring Charlie to the U.S. for treatment. And we'll talk with Wes Walterman, who is the CEO and musical director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Good news. It starts today. So stick around. We'll share it with you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. If you were listening to the last segment, you heard me uh, heard my conversation with Jeremy Dice. He's the Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty and host of the First Liberty Briefing. Uh, we didn't have an opportunity to talk about a computer security company that had actually blocked Liberty Council, people from accessing Liberty Council or Liberty Council accessing them because they had been declared a hate group uh, by the uh, security software company. Uh, we learned today that Norton Security Software, the antivirus software company owned by uh, Symantec, uh, that blocked users from the Liberty Council website stating it, it contains hate content, has now backed down. Now, if you know anything about Liberty Council, this is an organization whose sole purpose is to help support a religious liberty. It's an international nonprofit litigation, education, and policy organization. It's dedicated to advancing religious freedom, the sanctity of life, and the family since 1989 by providing pro bono assistance that's free of, of cost and representation on these and related topics. That's all they do. This gives you some notion, however, of how hate is now being so broadly defined that if you don't uh, agree with the prevailing cultural view and if you um, if you accept what the Constitution says we have a right to expect in this country, and that's religious freedom, then somehow you are labeled by increasing numbers of organizations as a hate group. And that's precisely what Norton Security Software had done. Well, they acted in response to Liberty Council's letter demanding an immediate review and reversal of the hate classification that blocked users from their website, which is simply www.nc.org. 
hatelc.org. Well, Norton's support lists various website categories and defines hate as websites that advocate hostility or aggression toward an individual or group on the basis of race, religion, gender, nationality, ethnic origin, and other involuntary characteristics, and sites that denigrate others or justifies inequality on the basis of those characteristics. However, Liberty Council does not advocate hostility or aggression toward anyone and does not justify inequality on any of uh, the categories uh, just mentioned. Well, as soon as Liberty Council learned that its website was blocked by Norton, a demand letter was sent to unblock the site because it does not contain hate. Norton did unblock the site and reviewed its content. Yesterday, Liberty Council received a written response that Norton's review concluded the site does not promote hate and should not be blocked. Now, the question is, from where did they get the notion that it was a hate site? And I think you can probably guess uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which blatantly claims that uh, not only does uh, Liberty Council, but several other organizations that advocate for conservative views fall in that category. Well, Liberty Council recently filed a lawsuit against the charity watchdog GuideStar for mislabeling Liberty Council as a hate group to deter potential donors. GuideStar is uh, using the caustic and false rhetoric from the Southern Poverty Law Center that blatantly claims our criteria, and this is um, Liberty Council, but other as well for a hate group has nothing to do with criminally or violently violence rather or any kind of um uh, guess we're making about this group could be dangerous. It's strictly ideological. The Southern Poverty Law Center's editor also stated, I want to say plainly that our aim in life is to destroy these groups, to completely destroy them. So that's what the Southern Poverty Law Center is all about, and that's what they're attempting to do through these surrogate organizations, the latest being uh, this software company. Well, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center is linked to two shootings in Washington, D.C., uh, they admitted James Hodgkinson liked their page on Facebook. Uh, he's the, the Washington, D.C. shooter who gunned down Representative Steve Scalise, two staff members and two U.S. Capitol Police officers. So they apparently incited violence. They also um, targeted uh, Representative Scalise with their rhetoric. And prior to that, they were linked to the attempted mass murder in 2012 to the shooting at the Washington, D.C. office of the Family Research Council. Floyd Corkins, he confessed to the FBI that he, in fact, intended to commit mass murder. He was motivated by their website, the Southern um, Poverty Law Center's so-called hate map that listed Family Research Council as a hate group. So in an effort to try to label certain groups as hate groups, they're inciting violence and there are specific cases linked to them. Well, pro-family values are not a computer virus, Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, says. Liberty Council is a pro bono litigation, education and policy organization, has nothing to do with hate. We we are pleased that Norton Security Software took the correct action and unblocked our website. Liberty Council opposes violence and hate. The Southern Poverty Law Center's false, defamatory, and dangerous hate rhetoric must stop. It has actually incited uh, hate in the form of violence. Uh, so wanted to mention that since we didn't have the opportunity to get into it in my uh, conversation with Jeremy. Dice. Also, we've been following fairly closely the story of uh, Charlie Gard as it unfolded in the UK. Well, the fight to save him, the British infant at the center of a worldwide debate about parental rights and medical treatment is coming to a close. On Monday, his parents, Chris Gard and Connie Yates, announced that they are ending their lengthy court battle over treatment of their son. 
One month after his birth last fall, baby Charlie was diagnosed with a very rare genetic disease. It's so rare that he's only one of 16 people in the world who have ever received the peculiar diagnosis. He's remained at uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital in London ever since. In early 2017, his mother began raising money to pay for an experimental treatment in America. The treatment had been used in cases similar to Charlie's, but not his particular condition. However, in April, a high court judge ruled that against Charlie's parents' wishes, the hospital could end Charlie's life support. Gard and Yates, his parents, never gave up on their son. They continued fighting for him to receive treatment. In the months that followed, Charlie's parents and the Great Ormond Street Hospital continued their way through the British court system. And after exhausting all legal options in the UK, the case went to the European Court of Human Rights. But after several weeks, the European court sided with the British court system. As Charlie's case made its way through the courts, international attention grew. World leaders from the Pope to President Trump called the baby uh, Charlie to have a chance for treatment at willing hospitals outside the UK. Well, during the announcement to the high court, Charlie's mother gave a heartbreaking statement that uh, read in the last 11, nearly 12 months, it's been the best and worst and ultimately life changing months of our lives. But Charlie is Charlie and we wouldn't change him for the world. We all our efforts have been for him. This is one of the hardest things that we've ever had to say. And we are about to do the hardest thing that we've ever had to do, which is to let our beautiful little Charlie go. She continue, continues, rather, there is one simple reason for Charlie's uh, muscle deterioration to, ex- to the extent that they are now time. A whole lot of time was wasted. Had Charlie been given the treatment sooner, he would have had the potential to be a normal, healthy little, little boy. She's pointing out that it took such an, an extremely long period of time to make their way through the courts uh, that Charlie did not have the uh, opportunity to avail, or they didn't have the opportunity to avail uh, themselves of the treatment available to him when the U.S. Uh, surgeon indicated that uh, too much time had lapsed for the treatment that he, the experimental treatment that he was offering to be effective for the boy. Again, uh, they uh, went on to say this outcome of socialized uh, medicine should give all national health care advocates pause. Charlie's parents had the money to try to save him, but the British National Health Service and the courts of England wouldn't let them try. Whose baby is Charlie, his parents or the states? Too much time was wasted in the battle against the government. Charlie Gard has shown us our future under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, So says the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, young ones and old ones and many who won't uh, we won't hear about. Uh, And they they make the link between the kind of health care system that Charlie Gard and his parents were under and the kind of system that we seem to be moving toward, despite uh, the vote that was taken in the Senate earlier today to at least begin the debate on health care here in the United States. Uh, but again, uh, the diagnosis or the um, the surgeon from the United States that had the opportunity to see Charlie Gard indicated uh, that too much time had lapsed for the experimental treatment to uh, improve his condition. And sadly, uh, the decision has now been made that uh, given the fact that so much time has lapsed, um, Charlie's parents will no longer resist what the state has indicated they insist will happen, and that is to remove uh, his breathing tube and uh, Charlie Gard will soon be dead. Uh, they also had to petition the court, and I'm not sure where this stands, to determine whether or not Charlie could be allowed to come home to die. And that question, as far as I understand, remains uh, an open question. But the parents uh, did request that Charlie be allowed to come home, at least for the brief period 
um, of that his life would continue with the withdrawn treatment so that he could die in the home that they had once hoped to bring him uh, back to. In any event, uh, Charlie's parents have withdrawn their petition and uh, the little boy will soon be dead. Uh, coming up next, we're going to uh, we're going to talk with uh, Wes Walterman. He's the CEO and musical director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Today's a big day for the tree, and it could be a pretty prosperous day for you. We'll tell you all about it when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm pretty thrilled because, well, it's July and we're going to talk about Christmas because there's a great opportunity for you to take advantage of some discount prices for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree back at the Keller Auditorium. And in fact, celebrating 55 years of great, inspiring performances. With me in studio is the CEO and the musical director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, Wes Walterman. Welcome. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, it's amazing. I think about you uh, right about this time of year. Most of us are thinking, oh, Christmas is months and months away. But long before we're thinking about the Christmas to come, you're preparing uh, and selecting music that will uh, be performed for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. When does all of that start for you? Also, it's Hallmark season. So on Hallmark Channel, you got Christmas for like two weeks. So my wife was really (laughs) into that up to about the 23rd, which now she's kind of bummed because they don't come back on now until uh, November, December. (laughs) But we start planning right after the uh, 54th season. What do we want to do? What do we want to keep? What went really well for us? What do we want to change? Um, always keeping the audience in mind and the kids in mind that come to our, our shows, what would they want to see next season? So we, we plan that in January, February, uh, and then we start working with some of our arrangers. I have, we have an arranger in New York that does some things for us, someone down in uh, California that does arranging, as well as someone here. And uh, we keep those guys pretty busy with some new ideas. And, uh, of course, we love to pull some of the older pieces out from like 10, 15 years ago. And we're going back to the grown-up Christmas list, which you sang last time for the 50th anniversary. So we're pulling that one out uh, again this year. Yeah, well, we're really looking forward to it. But one of the reasons we're talking about all of this today is... Today is the day that tickets go on sale for the 2017 performance of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Yes, and it's only for a limited time up to August 14th, and that's $5.50 off any seat, any performance. Any seat, any performance. And that's, if you're a family of four and you buy four tickets, that applies to every single ticket. Absolutely. There's $22 savings for that family just now, right there. let's face it. You know you're going to go. Don't wait until the last minute when you could enjoy this great discount. And for people who perhaps have not been back to the tree for a while, there was a period we were at, uh, at New Hope Church. Yep. We're back at the Keller Auditorium celebrating right. 55 years. This is a great season to, uh, to be reintroduced uh, to the choir where you're going to enjoy some old favorites and some new innovations that I think people will find absolutely thrilling. Oh, I'm so excited about this year's performance. Both Greg Tamblin, the producer, and myself have really been working hard behind the scenes, making sure this 55th season is something super special for everyone that comes in contact with us yeah. this year. Yeah. You know, we're, we're in a really challenging time, I think, in our city, and our state, all across the country. This might be the year that you not only come with your family and friends, the people that you used to come with. But you might want to invite somebody else, a neighbor who's never been. It, it's a good opportunity to remind people that there are things beyond uh, the things that concern us. And uh, purchasing a ticket now at that discount might give you the opportunity to invite people you might not otherwise uh, be able to afford. Now, again, 
Tickets go on sale today and through the 14th of August, you can enjoy a discount $5.50 off any ticket, any performance. You can buy direct through the official ticketing site, and that website is singingchristmastree.org. Again, singingchristmastree.org, or you can call Patty at 503-557-8733. That's 503 503- Five five seven eight seven three three, and use the code radio fifty five and enjoy a great uh, discount. Now performances begin on Friday, November the twenty fourth. Again on Saturday the twenty fifth and Sunday the twenty sixth. They resume on the thirtieth uh, on Thursday the thirtieth of November, and then uh, December first, second, and third. You can find out all that information on the website. And ticket prices range from twenty dollars to sixty dollars. And again, we're encouraging you to take advantage of the early bird special $5.50 off every ticket uh, that's valid right up through August the 14th be sure to use the code radio 55. Well, let's talk about year 55 of the singing Christmas tree. We're still going to celebrate hope and peace and joy and love, but there are some things that uh, folks might be surprised to, uh, to that they're going to have the opportunity to enjoy. There are. Uh, we have our jo- uh, the Jefferson dancers returning with uh, some incredible guest soloists, including the one and only Georgina Rice. Uh, fantastic voice. And also we have, we're, we're kind of uh, streamlining the second act, and we're, we're going to hone it into the word peace, and we're just really going to wrap the entire living, cinematic living nativity uh, into one word, and that's peace. And that's really the reason why mm. we all do this, is to come and present the real true meaning of Christmas. And then Timothy Greenidge will be uh, singing a song made famous called Peace at the very end of the show and kind of wrap things up for all of us. But, uh, of course, the first half is always fun with Santa Claus and, uh, and reindeer and, and the kids running across the stage. And we've got <laughs> a s- special things planned that I can't talk about here on the radio, but, the, you know, the audience members will be super surprised and excited when they see that happen in the first act. Yeah, absolutely. I love that there are choir members as young as 10, as old as 82, and somehow all together we make up a wonderful expression of what Christmas is all about. And this year that theme of peace is one that I think will resonate all across the Keller Auditorium and out throughout the city of Portland. Absolutely. And uh, we just interviewed another 20 people that want to be part of our adult choir uh, in the last week and a half. Uh, people have heard about the show. They've always wanted to be part of it. So they came and auditioned, and uh, they all made it, by the way. They all have uh, good voices, and uh, and I just ran them up and down a scale. So they're super excited to be the year, you know, 55 and their first year to be part of the Tree Choir. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question I think people have, and that's how do people become a part of the Singing Christmas Tree Choir, whether that's the adult choir or the children's choir? You know, uh, some people think, oh, it's intimidating. I I would never be chosen. I I don't even know what to do in an interview or an audition process. But basically, just go to info at singingchristmastree.org. That's info at singingchristmastree.org. Give us your name. Say, hey, I'm interested in, in year 55, being a part of the choir. What do I need to do? We'll bring you in. Uh, You'll sit across the desk from me, and and we'll talk a little bit and uh, give me a little bit of your history and your background. I'll run you up and down a scale. Make sure you can uh, run up and down a scale with me. If you want to sing a verse of of a hymn or a song or a Christmas song, you can do that. And it's just that easy. And I'll let you know at that very moment whether you're in or or maybe wait till the following year. But uh, we still have room for about another 10 to 15 people this year. So some of the listeners out there would like to... uh, 
come and audition with us. That they're more than uh, more than happy. We're ha- more than happy to have. Yeah, them. what a tremendous experience! I've I've bragged on the singing Christmas Tree Choir over the years. These are the sweetest people I've ever known, and part of what keeps me tethered to the uh, the the singing Christmas tree are the people who make yeah. up the choir and the all just all the people who do the various elements that make this uh, performance possible. I want to point out that Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir is uh, proud to be the only 501c3 religious organization to perform at the Keller Auditorium. And the choir members represent over 120 churches in the Portland metro area. And as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> ages range from 10 to 82. Some members have been singing uh, with the tree for over 30 years. Some are joining for the uh, very first time this year. You may be one of them if you uh, contact him and let him know uh, that you're interested in auditioning. But this 55th year, 55th year promises to be another stellar year of drawing our focus to what Christmas is all about, having a bit of fun in the process with uh, children, the dancers, the Joyful Noise Gospel Choir, mm-hmm. which is a relatively yeah. new addition as well. It's going to be a great 55th year. It will be. And uh, let me just point out something in our rehearsals as we begin rehearsals in Monday in, in September that uh, the rehearsals are intense. I mean, we, we really get to work on the music. But at the end of it, we, uh, we wrap it up by reading off requests of different choir members that have attended that, that evening mm-hmm. that, that have prayer requests. So we do pause for about 10, 10 minutes and just lift these needs to the Lord as a collective body. So it's, you know, it's just not all music, and we'll release you, and we'll see you next week. We really get down to the nitty-gritty because people live lives, and lives are pretty tough sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And so we want to recognize that on Monday nights, and all come collectively as a church body would in a, in a regular church setting, really lift those needs up to the Lord, and that's what we do every week as yeah, well. It's- very much a family, and and people yeah. are are ministering to our city and making uh, sacrifices that most of us really won't ever really <laughs> know about. Yeah, in order true. to make that possible. Very true. Well, we're talking about the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, uh, celebrating fifty five years back at the Keller Auditorium uh, this year, beginning uh, the day after Thanksgiving. Is that right? The day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's the day after Thanksgiving that Friday, that weekend, and then the following weekend. Following weekend, and uh, we're letting you know about uh, the fact that tickets are now. Now available at a discounted price, and you have up until uh, August the 14th to take advantage of that great discount. And this is the best price of the season, $5.50 off any ticket, any performance. You can buy direct through the official ticketing site, and that's singingchristmastree.org, or you can call the box office at 503-557-8733 and reserve your seats now. Now, let me encourage you to think about some other people in your neighborhood who perhaps have had a bit of a tough year. Uh, This might be a good time to bring um, your neighbors together and invite them to join you at the Singing Christmas Tree. Or maybe your your women's group, you want to do something over the holiday, and this is a great time to come together and just rejoice together, have a great time. And I have to tell you, the the nativity, um, the cinematic living nativity is absolutely gorgeous. It's the most moving representation of the events that took place that we read about in Scripture that I've ever seen. And I've I've been there a few times, and it's still as moving as the first time I saw it. So it's a, it's a tremendous addition to the Singing Christmas Tree, and I hope you will make plans to be a part of that. Again, Timothy Greenidge will be one of the soloists. Uh, Coral Walterman, beautiful uh, trained voice. Aaron Tamlin will be our featured guest uh, at the uh, the tree, and uh, we would love for you to be a part of uh, this great opportunity to kick off the Christmas season in a way that is edifying and uh, just kind of puts things into perspective. So um, again, we just want to encourage you to be a part of this year. 
Spears singing Christmas Tree. Again, the dates are November 24th, 25th, and 26th, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, beginning November the 30th through December the 3rd. And all that information can be found at the website, singingchristmastree.org. Well, Wes, thank you so much for for, uh, joining us. And I just want to personally thank you for all of the thought and the effort that goes into uh, producing the Singing Christmas Tree uh, and the beautiful presentation that it is every year. And I'm looking forward to this. It's a joy and privilege for us. Thank you, Georgine. Hey, thank you so much. All right, now's the time. Call, get your uh, Singing Christmas Tree tickets, 503-557-8733, or go to the website, singingchristmastree.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. This is the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I received an email that came uh, on Sunday. Of course, I wasn't here Sunday, and we had our pastor's uh, master's golf tournament on Monday. But Greg Allen, the pastor out at Bethany uh, Bible Church, had sent me an email that read, just passing on that Dr. Haddon Robinson went to be with the Lord yesterday. Here's my Facebook note about him and an additional article. Well, I appreciated so much the heads up. I was not personally familiar with Dr. Haddon Robinson, but he is a champion of biblical preaching. Now, the truth is, you're not going to read about it in the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal didn't cover it. It wasn't on the uh, front page of the Oregonian, but a great man has gone on to his reward, and I think it merits some time reflecting on who he was. Haddon Robinson is the respected author and seminary president who set the standard for expositional preaching. He died on Saturday. He was 86. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where he served as an interim president and professor of preaching, broke the news of his passing and posted a tribute this weekend. He also taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was president of Denver Seminary. In his books, classes, and radio instruction, he taught that sermons should be guided by the biblical text and focus on one idea or theme. Now, that doesn't seem particularly innovative, but these days, oh, don't we long for that kind of preaching and teaching. Robinson had been teaching students about expository uh, preaching for decades. His classic and recently updated tome, Biblical Preaching, which is used in more than 150 seminaries and Bible colleges, has become the go-to text for aspiring expositors. Um, He lamented the number of preachers who really begin with the text and let it govern the sermon is relatively small. Today, he went on to lament, the danger is that some preachers will read the latest psychology book into the text. They're not driven by a great theology, but instead by the social sciences. In addition to biblical preaching, Dr. Robinson wrote more than a dozen books on the topic and regularly taught through radio ministries, Discover the Word and the uh, Our Daily Bread. He warned preachers about veering into heresy with biblical application, distracting the congregation with sermon illustrations, or um, ostracizing uh, parts of the audience with tone. Among many striking quotes about preaching, he had said, There are no great preachers, only a great Christ. Well, the New York City native grew up in Harlem, became a Christian at Broadway Presbyterian Church, and preached his first sermon as a teenager with its prison ministry. He advocated for racial integration at the school at Dallas Theological Seminary. He taught Tony Evans among the school's first class of African-American students. Uh, Dr. Evans told uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, I am but a small part of the great cloud of witnesses that can testify to the eternal impact Dr. Haddon Robinson had 
uh, in keeping preachers like me from the sinful extremes of either boring people with the word of God or exciting them with the words of men. Hmm. Toronto pastor and Gordon Conwell alum Daryl Dash said this, I'm thankful that his legacy will live on not only through this student, um, but through those who benefit because he taught so many how to preach. In 2000, when he wrote about Psalm 49 in Christianity Today, he referred to death as a grim shepherd. For the believer in Jesus Christ, for the righteous person, we do not go out into death and into darkness. He concluded, instead, we go home to God. And he has done just that. Um, Writing... uh, About Dr. Haddon, Greg Allen, the pastor from Bethany Bible Church here in the Portland area, said this. I just found out about the home going on Saturday of Dr. Haddon Robinson, perhaps the greatest teacher of preachers in our time. I never actually took a class from him, but I have so often read from his textbook on preaching. And I had so many teachers and professors who had been taught by him that I almost feel as if I did have him as a beloved professor. I once had the opportunity to ask him, Dr. Robinson, you've been the inspiration for a lot of preachers in our time, but who inspired you? The answer he gave at first didn't really sound like an answer to my question, but here's a close recollection of what he said. Not long ago, I was going through a bunch of old boxes, and I found a notebook in which I wrote a note after listening to Harry Ironside preach. What I wrote was, why is it that some preachers can preach for 20 minutes and make it seem like an hour, and other preachers can preach for an hour and make it seem like 20 minutes? I have spent my life trying to learn the answer to that question. And then Pastor Allen concludes, Thanks, Dr. Haddon, for so faithfully passing on to us other struggling preachers uh, what you learned. A beautiful uh, tribute. Dr. Uh, Ronald Allen said this on his Facebook post, Dr. Haddon Robinson has just passed on to glory. He was my professor of homiletics, encourager, and friend. Beverly and I named our first son after him, Craig Haddon Allen. May his memory be treasured among the many people he blessed through his words and his life. And then uh, uh, Dr. Dash, I mentioned a moment ago, said this on his blog. I hadn't planned to post today. I received word today that Haddon Robinson passed away this morning. Haddon served as the Harold John um, Distinguished Professor of Preaching at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He wrote Biblical Preaching, a classic textbook on preaching. He's taught thousands of preachers in his tenures at Dallas Theological Seminary, Denver Seminary, and Gordon-Conwell. I had the privilege of taking my Doctor of Ministry under Haddon from 2004 to 2007. I learned much from Haddon as a preacher, but I learned even more from Haddon as a man. Haddon exuded integrity and humility. He's one of the best men I've ever known. I was more than a little nervous when it came time to defend my thesis before Haddon. My advisor was positive, but I knew his opinion would not stand before Haddon's. Haddon asked some pointed questions and raised a few good points, but somehow forgot to tell me at the end if I'd passed. It turns out that I had. Every year, a group of um, Doctor of Ministry graduates gathered to study a book of the Bible with Haddon and a commentator. We continued to learn from Haddon even after our formal studies concluded. You could tell what Haddon was speaking every time Haddon rose to speak. Um, The room was filled with the sound of typists trying to keep up with his thoughts. I'm grateful now that we were able to capture many of the unscripted comments. It's tempting to write a hagiography, as he put it. Uh, when it comes to someone like Haddon, he um, he wasn't perfect, and he was the first to admit it. That, in part, 
is what drew us to him. It's clear that Haddon walked closely with God, and as such, he wasn't overly impressed with himself. There are no great preachers, he said, only a great Christ. I saw, I last saw Haddon in December of last year. He wasn't doing well, but he continued to live as a man who loved God and loved his family. He was also loved by so many of us who had the privilege of knowing him. I'm sad that I won't have another opportunity to see Haddon for now, but I'm grateful that he's safely home. I'm thankful that his legacy will live on, not only through his students, but through those who benefited because he taught so many how to preach. One of my fellow students collected some quotes from Haddon. I'm going to conclude with some of my favorites. Thank you, Haddon. I'm going to miss you. And these are some quotes or Haddon-isms, as he uh, called them. I have a second-rate mind. Many communicators have a second-rate mind. I live with that. I am inadequate. I realize that. Another, I wonder if I've ever done anything out of a pure motive. How in the world could I ever hope to have a relationship with a righteous God? I find myself thinking that I can't. So I live with grace. If I, if I knew uh, me like God knew me, you probably wouldn't like me. The marvel of the Bible is that God is gracious. Another quote, if God isn't in it, you are in a bad trouble. It is an exercise in futility. Yet another, conceit is like acne on the skin. It is not attractive. Humility is like a bloodstream. It is always of God. The first child swallows a quarter and you race them to the doctor. The third child swallows a quarter and you tell them, that's coming out of your allowance. Another Haddonism. There's a great freedom in the pulpit. You are not a slave. You are a prince. I used to think a life as a high, think of life as a highway with lots of potholes along the way. Now I see it as a country road with a smooth place every once in a while. Another Haddonism. I look in the mirror and say, what is a young man like me doing in an old body like that? Hmm. If one person calls you a donkey, ignore it. If three people call you a donkey, get a saddle. Another Haddonism, I think I would be more strategic in the way that I invest my hours, my months, and my years. Uh, if, uh, if you chase that rabbit, you won't uh, get the bear. And finally, in the words of John Calvin, lots of luck. Well, he sounds like a, a wonderful teacher, certainly one who has influenced preaching in this country for many generations, and he uh, will certainly be missed, but I hope his influence will continue again in memoriam of Haddon Robinson, Dr. Haddon Robinson, who passed away on Saturday. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Chris Thurman. He is the author of The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. And on Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Kathleen Michelle, A River of Tears, first-person account revealed the true cost of abortion, self-published, it's her story. Thanks so much to Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of today's program and producing all. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.